you may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast. And we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to contact the show, you can call us at 844-999-9249. That's 844-999-9249. You can always email the show at letstalktorah at gmail.com. I'm very lonely this week. Uh, they've moved out, uh, whoever takes care of my board, behind the glass. So now they're playing sounds in one ear, and I'm listening to myself in the other ear. This should be an excellent experiment, I'm sure. If everybody else figures out how to do it, it can't be that hard. But we'll find out. We'll see. So I told you last week it was uh, my wife's turn to take the girls in. This week it was my turn to take my son into camp. So we took a... Wonderful. I don't know you people in California and Red Eyes. We took a 10 o'clock flight that left at 11.15 at night, lands 12.30. Um, kudos to National, who kept the people by the rental desk in this little Trenton airport, so I could still get my rental car in the middle of nowhere. Um, got to my son's house at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, I stayed basically one day. Took care of some shopping, glasses, picked up some stuff, went up to visit my mother up in Muncie, and I did something quite interesting. Maybe you have heard of this, maybe you haven't heard of this before, but certainly something interesting to think about. It's a custom. And as I'm sure I've mentioned on the show, in about a month from now, I have a, a son's wedding. You know, God willing, son's wedding will be in New Jersey, for those who like to try to find it. Um, so there's a, a seems to be a very old custom that the, the in my case, I would go to my father's grave and I would invite him to the wedding, which, again, seems a little strange. Like, if he's a soul, so he's everywhere, so he knows what's going on. So, like, why do I have to go invite him specifically? And I don't know all the answers. It seems to be a holy thing. It seems to be a special thing. It seems to be an accepted custom. There's actually even prayers. I have some book at home with all kinds of prayers in them. There's a special prayer for inviting a relative to a wedding. And I did so. It was very good. It was a good opportunity just to go, just to be by his grave, to talk for a few minutes. Um, some people actually have a custom to bring a wedding invitation. I guess they just leave it. But um, I asked at least a half a dozen people, and all the responses were, we've heard of the custom, but we don't know anyone who does it. Sure enough, I come back to Detroit Tuesday morning and uh, had a meeting in school. And sure enough, one of the women says to me, oh, yeah, we, we bring an invitation to the gravesite. So, okay. So there's who do. There are those who don't. Um, whatever the custom is, it's all wonderful. It's a, it's a custom. It's uh, something good to do. And I did it. Came back on that 6 o'clock flight in the morning. So I was basically there for 24 hours, sort of. 24 hours? No, not even. Yeah, 24 hours, 36 hours. 
And my son, who came back with me, decided he likes to be early to the airport. So I had to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, drive to the airport at 3.30, drop off the car at 4.15. I don't know, by 4.30, I'm already through the gate. I'm sitting there, very tired, with nowhere comfortable to close my eyes, but uh, all good. Safe trip in, safe trip back, thank God. Here I am talking about lots and lots of stuff that are really going on right now on the Jewish calendar and this week's Torah portion. First of all, this week's Torah portion is Devarim. It is the beginning of the last book, the fifth book of the Torah. Interesting, fifth book, the, the, the Hebrew word for the five books is a chumish. Chumish is from the word five or from the word fifth. So, um, so this is the beginning of the fifth book. A lot of interesting things happening in this fifth book called Dvarim, which we'll see if we can get to some of them later today. Um, we have a special guest. His name is Ali Talenfeld from, I believe right now he's in Arizona. And he wrote a book called Through a Still Imperfect Lens, a very interesting book. A lot of psychology, a lot of uh, marriage therapy. And we're going to probably spend most of our time with him discussing his views and thoughts into marriage therapy. And uh, he's pretty passionate about it. The book itself has its own interesting stories of how he discovered what therapies do or don't work and, and, and what's important, what may not be as important. That's really the focus of the book. But he himself, his passion is clearly with marriage therapy, and we're going to spend time, marriage therapy, family therapy, we're going to talk about it. he is not actually a therapist, but he's been involved with so many different groups that uh, he has a pretty good handle on it without the actual schooling. So we're going to talk about that. Um, but first things first, we have to talk about the Jewish calendar. So the Jewish calendar, we are, we talked in the past, we're in the saddest period um, in the Jewish calendar. We have started the month of Av, um, which leads up to the ninth of Av, known as Tishabav. We'll talk about what happens on Tishabav. This year is a fascinating year because the ninth of Av actually falls out this Shabbos. It's on Saturday. We don't fast on the Sabbath unless it's Yom Kippur. So what happens to all the rules and regulations of mourning that we're going to talk about on Tishavav when, when that day you're not allowed to do that stuff? So the truth is it gets pushed off to Sunday, and for the most part, Sunday becomes as if that was the real day. For not everything, but for the most part, that's what happens. Um, there are a few laws that do change, which we'll, which we'll get into. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of the laws, let's talk about what is this, this uh, inauspicious day, if you like to call it that, this day called Tisha B'Av, the saddest day of the Jewish calendar. So the Mishnah says five things, five tragedies took place on this day. Now, the truth is you want to go through history. Um, there's many, many tragedies that take place on the ninth of Av. But throughout the Talmud, there's five we focus on. So the first one we focus on is the story of the spies, which happens to be repeated in this week's Torah portion. So just to give us a quick overview, um, the Jewish people have left Mount Sinai. They are marching towards the land of Israel. People get nervous, and they say, you know, we, get, we don't know what we're getting into over here. You say it's the land flowing milk and honey. What kind of land is it? We want to know. We want to check it out. So 
Moses says, fine, we'll, we'll send spies so you guys can find out what's, what it's really all about, right? There's no, there's no internet, there's no telephones, there's no way to communicate and call somebody in satellite pictures. There's no way to know what is this Israel, what kind of people are there. You're clueless. So we'll send, we'll send a group of people and they'll come back and inform us. God had told Moses a bad idea. And in this week's story portion, Moses tells the Jewish people that I warned you it was a bad idea. So there's 12 spies, one from each tribe. That doesn't include the tribe of Levi. So one from each tribe. You have two out of the 10 will be, will be good. They'll, they won't come back and slander the land. That's going to be Joshua and Kalev. Uh, but the rest of them are going to slander the land. We've talked about different reasons um, over time. They were going to lose their position of authority. There was a, a, a very strong evil inclination because they shouldn't have asked for this in the first place. So God gave them a place to trip up. But they spy out the land, they come back 40 days later, they went to spy for 40 days, they come back, and they arrive back the night of Tisha B'av. Right again, so in the Jewish calendar, the, the day follows the night. So it is the night before the 9th of Av, that's the day in the calendar. They come back and they give this terrible report. And again, they're not acting like regular spies. Regular spies... The job is the general sends you on a mission. You don't get to come back and go to the newspaper and tell the editor all the things you saw. For that, you'll be executed. That's treason. You're not allowed to do that. But this group decided they were going to spread the word amongst the Jewish people before they go to Moses because they knew you go to Moses, he's going to shut you down, and uh, therefore we won't get our message out, which is what they wanted to do. So it says the Jewish people cried that night. Can I tell you it's everyone? I don't know. But it was certainly a, a, I mean, it says everybody cried. So if everybody's everybody, let it be everybody. But in any case, so God tells Moses, first he says he's going to destroy the Jewish people. Moses prays. God says, okay, instead we're going to leave in the desert for 40 years, but no one in this generation will be allowed to enter the land of Israel. Only the next generation will go in because you cried what's going to be with your kids, with your wives. Your wives and kids will get in, but you men are not going in. You're all dying in the desert. Fine. So that takes place that night. So they're all crying. So God says, pretty much similar to what we'll tell our children sometimes, um, your child is crying hysterically, and you could say to that child, you have, there's no reason you're crying now, but if you don't stop this crying, I'm going to give you a reason to cry. So God basically said the same thing. He said, you cried for no reason. I told you it's a beautiful land. It's a wonderful land, flowing with milk and honey, and you decided to listen to the slander. Fine, you're not going in. But because you cried, this night now becomes the day where tragedies will befall the Jewish people. So that was the ninth of Av. And interesting, by the way, um, in the desert, so you have 600,000 men. That means on average 15,000 men will have to die every year to wipe out those 600,000. They're going to die over 40 years. So they actually would... The, all the men, because no one knew exactly, officially it was when you were 60 they died, but no one knew that exact calculation. So therefore they all slept in open graves. If you woke up in the morning, good. If you didn't wake up in the morning, they buried you. So they, the, that open grave that those men slept in to see if they're going to live that night or die was always done the night of Tisha B'av. Okay, so this is where the night of Tisha B'av starts where we have all our problems. Then we get to the first and second temple. Both the first and second temple were destroyed on the 9th of Av. 
in truth, really, the destruction began as they started lighting the fires to burn it down on the 9th, uh, but most of it was actually burned down on the 10th. So both the first temple and the second temple were all destroyed on this ninth day of of. So again, the, tel- the temple represents that God's presence is amongst the Jewish people. And we were so bad that we deserve to be destroyed. So God said, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to send my anger on sticks and stones. I mean, a lot of people died also. But the Jewish people will survive. That takes place in the first temple. That takes place also in the second temple. Interesting, what we did wrong in the first temple and second temple were actually two different things. The first temple, we we did big sins. There was idol worship. There was murder. There was there was uh, there was adultery. That was the first temple. There also was infighting, but that fighting was really more amongst the elite, not amongst the regular people. By the second temple, we had a we had somebody on a couple months ago talked about idol worship. Um, at the beginning of the second temple, the rabbis prayed to get rid of idol worship. At that time, really, idol worship was on its way out, so idol worship wasn't the problem. But the problem was something called sinas chinam, which is uh, just hatred for no reason, just hating people when there was no reason when there was no reason to hate these people. So um, so that senseless hatred, that's what I was looking for, that senseless hatred b- became the cause for the downfall and the destruction of the Second Temple. The story, the most famous story, which I think we have enough time for, the most famous story of what brought down the destruction of the Second Temple is called the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. Perhaps it was father and son, um, but one, one man's name was Kamsa, one guy's name was Bar Kamsa. So this A person who actually goes nameless is making a party. And he sends his messenger with, you know, hand-delivered invitations to come to a party. Many rabbis were there. This was a very fancy, special party. The, the messenger made a mistake. Instead of delivering the letter to Kamsa for the personal invitation, he brings the letter to Bar Kamsa. So Bar Kamsa looks at the letter. He knows this. What happened was that the, the host of this party was best buddies with Kamsa and hated Bar Kamsa. So Bar Kamsa gets a letter, says, you're invited. So now, what is he thinking? The guy hates me. I hate him. He hates me. Why is he inviting me? He should have thought, mistake. Instead, he decided to show up at the party. Now, these there must have been good reason for this animosity between these two people, because just follow the story, what happens next. So in the next part of the story, so the host is going around and greeting his guests, and how are you, and what's doing, and um, and he sees is not there. And it would seem he also notices that Kamsa didn't show up, as an aside. Um, I get invited to weddings all the time. Sometimes I forget if I'm invited. Sometimes it uh, gets lost in the mail. If it's a good friend, you don't need an invitation. You don't must sit down and have something to eat. The eating is like secondary. You're hungry, go buy a slice of pizza. You know what I mean? Except me, I don't eat the pizza, go buy a steak, whatever you want. But if your friend is celebrating, you go. You don't have to stay long. You go in, congratulate, mazel tov, whatever it is. Um, whatever the party is for, just go, show your face, and get out. 
if you don't have a seat, if that's such an important thing. Kamsa didn't get the invitation, Kamsa doesn't go. Barakamsa gets the invitation, he shows up. So the host sees Barakamsa. He says, you're my enemy, what are you doing here? Oh, I got an invitation, I thought you wanted me. He says, I know what you're talking about, um, you should know better, get out of my party. So again, there must have been very important people by this party. So Barakamsa says, so Barakamsa says that uh, at least let me pay for my meal. You don't want me to be here, I'll, you, I'll pay for my meal. The host says, I hate you. I don't need your money. Get out. Barakamsa says, I'll pay for half the meal. I just don't want to be embarrassed. The host says, I don't care. I want you out of here. Barakamsa finally says, I'll pay for the whole meal. And the host says, I want nothing to do with you. Get out. Now, again, there's a lot of rabbis there, so it's it's hard to imagine that this Barakamsa is a wonderful fellow, as we'll see in the next part of the story. He's not a wonderful fellow. He's not a good guy. So he, they, he, they throw him out, and he says, they, that man, he embarrassed me, and all those rabbis saw I was being embarrassed. I'll show them. So he goes to the Caesar. Again, it must have been an important fellow. Goes to the Caesar, says, the Jews are rebelling. So the Caesar says, why, why do you think they're rebelling? Like, what are they doing that they're rebelling? What's, what's the rebellion? So he says, I'll prove it to you. You give me a sacrifice to be brought in their temple, you'll see they won't bring it. It's fine. Send some soldiers. They give him a sheep. He takes it. And this Barakamsa um, either splits the eyelid or he splits the lip. And uh, and by and by the Romans, by non-Jews, that does not affect the sacrifice. But by, by the Jews, it does affect the sacrifice. So he brings it to the temple and says, here is the sacrifice from the Caesar. The problem is it has a blemish. So the, there was a debate, what should be done? Should they bring it anyways? Oh, here comes my music. We're going to finish this part of the story, but this led to the destruction of the Second Temple. So you're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on NRM Streamcast. When we come back, we'll be joined by Elliot Talenfeld. Hold through the bacon. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's a horror movie. Bury <laughs> yeah. the phone in the bat cemetery. It's got a cord. <laughs> I'm Ben Rose for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians and a playlist curated by me just for you. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. <laughs> I still just love that line. Yeah. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you? Hey, how are you? I'm Gerald Valley, and I want to invite you to listen, watch, share my new show, The Drop-In. It is going to cover skate, music, culture, actually all sports. I have some great guests lined up, and it's to inspire and motivate people to make the most of this life we have. Check out the inspiration, the stoke, and the life of The Drop-In with Gerald Valley. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you.
and we're back. And as promised, we are joined by Elliot Talenfeld, a man of many talents, cantor, lawyer, judge, and author of Through a Still Imperfect Lens. Elliot, how are you? I'm great. Thank you, Rabbi. Good. Good to hear you. How is the weather in Arizona? Oh, it's hotter than hell. Okay, now we know it's not that hot here. We're just in the mid-80s. We're good. But then I certainly hope you enjoy the weather. So before we, we get into all the stuff we said we were going to talk about, please tell everyone, who is Elliot Talenfeld? Elliot Talenfeld. I'm a 71-year-old, uh, semi-retired attorney. Uh, I spent most of my life practicing law, also teaching law. Um, and about 10 years or more ago, I went back to school to get a degree in counseling at uh, Arizona State University. I've always been fascinated by the process of uh, communication, particularly between couples and uh, husbands and wives. I married a therapist, um, and so uh, I was wanting to study that field so I had a little more uh, academic understanding of I had spent most of my life uh, trying to learn with my wife. There's a uh, one of the books that most influenced me was uh, Scott Peck's uh, The Road Less Traveled, and there's a line in that where he writes that any genuinely loving relationship is one of mutual psychotherapy. So this notion of mutual psychotherapy and how a husband and wife uh, or a loving couple uh, communicate uh, and uh, prosper in terms of their relationship, but also in terms of their individual uh, personal growth uh, has always been of interest to me. And that's really what my book is all about. Great. And that's exactly what we're going to get into. Um, So the first two questions are really quite simple. Um, One is, why did you write the book? And why such an interesting title? Again, the title is Through a Still Imperfect Lens. Well, the title is is a play on the... um, on the cover, the picture on the cover of the book is uh, a shot taken by the Hubble telescope. And you may remember that when that thing was launched and billions were spent uh, in process of developing it, and it, there were great expectations for it uh, revealing secrets of the universe. Um, but the pictures that initially came back were fuzzy. And they had to send some astronauts up uh, to actually make physical repairs on the lens itself. And so the shot that's on the cover of my book is, is a gorgeous picture of another galaxy uh, shot through that, and I call it still imperfect lens. So the metaphor is that in our lives, uh, likewise, we are trying to figure out what it's all about. Um, but when, And first we get a fuzzy picture, and then we, uh, throughout our lives, make various repairs and uh, try to get a better look at what's really going on here. Cool. So that's the title. So, But why did you write the book? Why did you feel it was an important book to write? Well, I'll be the first to uh, admit, Rabbi, that the, the writing of this book was a cathartic process for me. Um, I reached a point in my life where, for reasons that are uh, detailed, uh, quite uh, frankly, in the book, I needed to uh, reassess uh, where I had been, where I had come from, where I was, and where I was going. And so, if you think about it, some folks uh, talk about a life review that uh, uh, that, that um, we may go through at the moment uh, that we pass, where our whole life flashes to before us. I basically took about a 10-year period 
to uh, put that uh, on slow motion, that, that life review, and examine uh, what what choices I had made and what experiences they had that brought me and the lessons uh, that I needed to learn. It was an excruciating process, to be honest with you. It was uh, like an emotional reliving of every uh, important moment of my life. But uh, I wrote it fundamentally because I had to for, for my own reasons. Um, in the process of doing that, I did feel, and maybe this is hubris, uh, but I did feel that uh, that I reached some conclusions and some lessons that might be of value to some others. And that's why I decided to go forward and publish the book. Okay, great. So there's something, and there definitely is. I read through the book. Um, there is definitely what to learn. So we're gonna. I'm gonna ask you general first, and then we'll get more into the specifics. But one of the things we talked okay. about is is your. I use the word theory. That's probably the wrong word. But um, what is your theory when it comes to marriage counseling, or any other therapy, by that way, which uh, which is really quite different from what many many other therapists feel. Well, you know, I was talking to a therapist online uh, just the other day about the difference between marriage counseling and individual counseling and the role of the emotional experience that the individuals are having in the context of a marital relationship. And and one of the things that my book takes on is the doctrinaire wall uh, for uh, for Jewish religious people. You could think of it as a machitza, a separation that therapists erect between individual clinical practice and relational work, in other words, marriage counseling. My premise is that the conflicts that arise in the primary relationship are perfect points of access to the individual's respective inner conflicts, and that individual and relational counseling should therefore be seen as two sides of the same clinical coin, Uh, and that even the relatively benign day-to-day conflicts that arise between marital partners should be viewed as the very coin of the therapeutic realm. I'll tell you a story. Early in my marriage, my wife was becoming increasingly depressed, and it it got to the point where I was actually concerned for her safety. And when it got to that point, and at this stage of my life, I was a a litigation attorney, uh, had no real experience myself, either in counseling, much less training to be a counselor. But my instinct was to call up her therapist and uh, express my concern. And, and so I, uh, I went ahead and did that, and uh, I, on the other end of the phone was a, uh, a strict Kleinian psychoanalyst um, whose response uh, really spoke, uh, well, his response was, Mr. Talentfeld, I do not have a contract with you. My contract is with your wife. So please do not interfere further, and that was exactly the word he used in my relationship, in my contract with your wife. Well, th- this totally freaked me out. I mean, I, I too, had a contract with my wife, <laughs> called the Ketuba. <laughs> right. And uh, it, it seemed to me that that both preceded and superseded uh, the contract she might enter into with any other man, uh, professional or, or otherwise. Sorry. Yeah, you so, know, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. It's, and as I agree with you. The funny thing is, I almost agree with a doctor, but for the wrong reason. In other words, it's true 
that many therapists have a one-on-one relationship, and we have all these HIPAA rules and all these other rules and regulations. I, you know, I bring my my 21-year-old to the doctor; They're, they officially can't talk to me. So, so it's true that the doctor is stuck that he's only talking to your wife. But that really is, I think, your your whole premise. That's the mistake. There never should have been a one-on-one doctor-client privilege without all the important players, obviously a spouse. Am I getting that right? Yes, I agree with that completely. And, you know, it seems self-evident that any significant change in the individual is going to impact the relationship. So it it is incongruous in a certain sense that, that marriage counseling and individual treatment are administered separately. I understand the concerns for confidentiality and the ethical uh, duties of the doctor and HIPAA and all of that. But the therapist is treating the individual without input from the absent but no less impacted spouse, while the marriage counselor is addressing the couple's communication on a superficial level but with scant attention to root psychological issues. So why not figure out a way, and, and it, it's by no means easy uh, to, to put flesh on these bones, but why not figure out a way to uh, treat um, both the root cause and the communication uh, in the same venue? Um, and I think that's really my challenge to the psychological clinical uh, profession. Right. And I know um, communication the, by you is a very, very big deal when it comes to marriage. And and I, I think most people have a certain view of what a healthy marriage is. Uh, we say we love each other. We get along civilly. We, we, don't, uh, we don't fight too often. Now, we may have to stop before the break and continue after the break. But um, I know you have a different definition for a healthy marriage. So let's at least get through the definition before the break, and then we can talk about it after the break. So how do you define, you, Elliot Talenfeld, how do you define a healthy marriage? Well, I would say it's a, it's a marriage in which each partner um, makes the other better because of his or her presence in the relationship. Um, and uh, specifically, I would say um, that a healthy relationship is one that is honest, authentic, and and I'll use the word clean as far as the communication is concerned. Okay, so let's let's back up on that word authentic because we spend time on that word authentic. When you say an authentic um, relationship, is that the same thing as having just communication? No, because communication first first off is is verbal is a verbal uh, process, and um, when I talk about uh, authenticity and honesty in the communication between spouses, I'm including the emotional component. So it's not enough to be factually accurate in what we're communicating. We've got to actually let the other person in, and and let them see not just our grievances, but the, the grief itself. Uh, we've got to have a personal exchange, and we've got to be authentic in expressing our emotions. Elliot, we're going to um, get back. We're, we're going to focus on this, but my music is playing, so I have to take a All break. Right, sure. So hold through the break. We're going to be right back. We're going to talk about authenticity. We're going to talk about marriage. Uh, so hold through the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on Let's Talk Torah, and we'll be right back. Right. Why are we here? What makes a person truly good? 
For those answers, you're gonna have to take a philosophy class. But if you're more interested in who would win in a fight between R2-D2 and a Dalek, watch Get It to the Geeks. Times we see a guy running down to first base and it's, it turns into a hobble. Get yeah. Umped. I mean, that's the, getting umped. <laughs> that, that can't be the same guy. Can't be the same guy. I'll tell you what happened. G'day, Morty. I got the Szechuan sauce. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original Blue Power Ranger. Nobody right. promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. Wait, your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. <laughs> Welcome back to Who's Got Chutzpah. I'm your host, Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. And are you ready? Andy, what holiday is this associated with? Oh, boy. Uh, uh. Sukkot? I'm sorry, that's not the answer we were looking for. Whitney, for the win, can you tell us which holiday is this? I know. Shavuot. No, I'm sorry. I've got the answer. Ta-da! What? My show, Let's Talk Torah, where we talk Torah, holidays, faith, and all the things that help us live our life. That's Let's Talk Torah, Thursdays at 3 p.m. That's pretty good. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. And we're back, joined still by Elliot Talenfeld, author of Through Through a Still Imperfect Lens. Elliot, are you still there? I sure am. Okay, good. So let's, we're going to now, now that we had a quick break, we're going to refocus. So when you talk about authenticity in a marriage, uh, my understanding from you is that if I have a grievance, if I have a complaint, even if it's petty, if there's something bothering me, instead of just ignoring it and let live, I'm supposed to verbalize exactly what's bothering me. Is that going in the right direction? Yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, there's a time and a place always for such communication, but uh, it is important that we not sweep stuff under the rug, um, because that uh, just causes uh, issues to fester and... uh, it doesn't allow either of us to grow. So and sometimes, you know, we enter into a tacit agreement with our spouse that uh, that we will do exactly that, uh, and we achieve in our relationship a kind of a, a homeostasis, an emotional homeostasis, where you know you're you're going to play this role and you're going to engage in this kind of behavior and and presentation towards me, and and I, and I'm going to react in a predictable way, and and, and nobody's going to rock that boat. And of course, there are people who uh, who stay together in a relationship for many, 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 many years, uh, never really scratching beneath the surface of their conflicts. Um, reminds me of a story. Uh, Miss, Mrs. Uh, Epstein went to uh, a lawyer. She was 85 years old and had been married 50 years. She went to a divorce lawyer, and the lawyer said to her, well, Mrs. Epstein, with all due respect, I have to ask you a question. You've been together all this time. You're 85 years old. Why now? And her answer was, because 
enough is enough. So there comes a point, and maybe that's early in the marriage, or, or maybe it's later, uh, when the, the urge to grow, to actually communicate on an intimate, personal, real, authentic level, uh, becomes so strong that one uh, of the partners is willing to rock that boat, however gingerly uh, or, or however roughly. It depends, of course, on the circumstances. And then the process, the real work of, of marriage, it seems to me, is just now beginning. Right, so it's amazing. In your mind, um, marriage is not just two people that are happen to share a bedroom and happen to share children and happen to share a bank account. But if there's not, we could almost use the word spiritual. I'm just reading another book, and they're calling they, they use the word spiritual in this kind of idea. But if we want to have a a if the purpose of marriage is to go ahead and build a real relationship, and in your words, to actually grow, then the only way to do that is to be real. That's right. These are two souls committing each other to love each other and, and to be honest with each other and to work diligently together uh, toward their individual, but also toward their uh, marital uh, uh, growth, their relational growth. You know, I'm, I'm a great fan of the famous psycho- uh, psychologist uh, Carl Rogers, who uh, used to say that he, what he offered his clients was unconditional positive regard. And much as I admire Carl Rogers, I've never understood that, because the regard he's referring to is, is being metered out in 45-minute increments, going for you know, two or $300 a dose. And, and so I don't begrudge any therapist his livelihood, but unconditional such regard is not. I think the regard that a husband and a wife commit to is is the is the regard to be together uh, with with all of their emotional foibles and issues and stresses that are going to manifest in the relationship, and then to work through those not in forty five minute sessions but uh, for the rest of uh, of their lives. So if you view it in that way, then the the marital friction that inevitably occurs in every relationship becomes the coin of the therapeutic realm in the, in the context of this mutual therapy between a husband and a wife. So you need a couple to go ahead and, I guess, strip down all the veneer, if we want to use fancy words. we got to get rid of all, all of the pretenses and all of the pretend. And I use the word real. We have to become real. But, but that's going to be intense. In other words, all of a sudden, I'm bearing my soul, my spouse is bearing her soul, and everything that bothers us about the other one, you know, is out in the open. So you've, I mean, to a certain extent, you've hurt me. All the things that I thought were good about me, you've said, are, are worthless. So you're asking us almost to go all the way to the bottom to start all over again. Is that what, what, what couples need? No, I'm not uh, making this an all-or-nothing proposition or suggesting that we have to go uh, do it in one intensive marathon um, uh, session with each other. But, you know, what is the goal of psychotherapy? Um, it's not just an intellectual study. It, it, it's, it's a, the goal is our personal uh, growth and ultimately our relational growth. So just as our psycho-spiritual deficiencies will reveal themselves in our behavior, shouldn't our individual growth 
manifest functionally in an improved behavior and relationships, particularly with our most significant other. So uh, that doesn't mean that we dive into an unrelenting, uh, uh, aggressive uh, examination of our relationship every time uh, our husband forgets to put the milk back in the refrigerator. Good example. Um, but it means being honest, being authentic, and communicating on a level that is, as therapists would call it, uh, affect appropriate. In other words, it's 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 not just words. It's it's got some emotional content in it. We allow our our partners to see what we're feeling and what's uh, what it is that's bothering us. Always, though, in proportion to the to the context. We're not going to do that at a restaurant necessarily. Um, uh, uh, nor are we going to do it maybe the very first moment that uh, that the impulse occurs to us. We, we, it, it starts and stops with self-awareness and then with uh, a, 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 a communication based on that self-awareness that is proportionate to, to the situation. So it's interesting. I have a son who's engaged. So um, after they get married, so there's something called the Shavabrachas. It's a week of basically partying with friends and family and relatives. And everybody gets up and gets to give long-winded speeches. And don't worry, I've written three speeches myself, of which hopefully I'll only have to say one. Um, and there's a line that everybody always says. The line basically is that this young couple should build a complete house. And we continuously talk about how the couple mirror each other, and the goal is that they're continuously building each other up. That's the goal. The goal is not just to to share an apartment. The goal is to build. Um, and that, I believe, is what you're trying to teach people. Am I now getting well, that right? It is. It is, except that the, the one caveat I would throw in is that if we if we make uh, shalom bias or, or peace, peace in the home, um, the ultimate uh, goal, uh, then we may end up just keeping the lid on things. So the building up process also involves a certain amount of tearing down, uh, not in a not in a destructive way, but in a healthy clearing of the field way, so that what we build together uh, is healthy and rich and spiritual and loving. Okay, you said it very good. I have a note here for myself. One of the um, things we talked about is uh, we talk about different emotions, and anger is an example. And generally speaking, um, the different Jewish rabbis over history have talked about how anger is something that you want completely out of the equation, almost completely. But when we I when we, with that. When we talked, we um, you actually said there is a place for anger in a marriage. Or at least to bring it out, so we can we can we can uh, work it through. You know, if if I'm feeling warm, and 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 go to the thermostat and look at it, and it says, well, the temperature's only seventy two in here, I shouldn't be feeling warm. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not feeling warm. And if I'm feeling angry, that's no less a real uh, uh, and important experience to acknowledge and address. Um, with with the person that is most closely connected or associated with us and probably with that anger. So, um, you know, we, if, if we shut ourselves down to one emotion, it's kind of like, um, you know, let's say you subscribe to cable TV and you want to add HBO. Well, 
you know, the, the cable company can just flip a switch if you pay them an extra 10 bucks a month to, to turn that frequency on and, and, and receive it. But human beings aren't like that. We can't screen out uh, uh, intense feelings and, and then go on about our business and think that we are open to the other feelings, the ones that we think are better, more attractive, more desirable, more spiritual even. Uh, all of these feelings are real emotional and spiritual inputs that we're receiving uh, for a reason, so that we can respond appropriately and communicate appropriately and enhance uh, both our current state of, of feeling and our relationship and our intimacy with our partner. Amazing. So you don't do that by by keeping the lid on at all costs or avoiding, you know, uh, marriage counseling. One of the first things they teach you is is to use I statements. Um, in other words, don't uh, don't say anything that uh, appears to characterize or judge uh, the partner. Um, uh, but uh, start each sentence by saying I feel that, or when you do this, I feel, etc. Well, it can become so mechanical because we're we're trying so hard to keep a certain civility uh, in the process that uh, we miss the forest for the trees. If if we're angry, it's important that we know it. It's important that our partner know it, and and finally, it's important that together we address it in a respectful and healthy uh, way. And those are important caveats, of course. Okay, so as my time is just about up, and as a review, we talked about authenticity, which is going to help me discover who I am, who my spouse is. It's going to give us a what we'll call a real relationship. And clearly, you've been telling us that it's worth the journey. You actually even gave a very interesting um, comparison. Um, you talked about like precious stones rubbing together. So before I let you finish up, and I'm towards the end of my time, I would like you to talk about those precious stones rubbing together. I would like you to leave us with an important thought and tell us how to get your book. Well, how much time have I got? Because I've got a story I could conclude with. Let's say about um, a minute and a half. All right. So there's a, in ancient times, a rabbi, not a rabbi, a king had a, a servant uh, a valet who used to drive him crazy. He was very attentive to the king. He did everything he was supposed to do. He was efficient, but he had this habit of always saying whenever anything bad happened, uh, whatever happens is good. That was his mantra. So one day he was shaving the king and he drew a little blood. He cut the, the king's face. And believe it or not, when, when the king said, hey, what, what's going on? He said, your majesty, whatever happens is good. And the king said, guards, take this jerk to the, to the dungeon. And they locked him up, and the king was still upset and decided he better get out of the castle and go for a ride. So he got on his horse and went into the forest and was suddenly surrounded by a group of pagan bandits who decided that what they would do, according to their religion, was sacrifice the king to their god. And so they gathered some firewood together, and they tied the king up to the tree. And we're all set to light the match until the leader of the pagan band said, Elliot, I have an idea. Even though normally my guests finish at this point, I have about 15 seconds to my break. We're going to do something different. If you can hold through one more break, I'm going to let you finish that story. Can you hold for uh, a minute or two? Sure. Okay, you're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on on NRM Streamcast. We still have Elliot Dalveld with us. He's going to finish the story after the break. So please hold through the break. 
Why are we here? What makes a person truly good? For those answers, you're gonna have to take a philosophy class. But if you're more interested in who would win in a fight between R2-D2 and a Dalek, watch Get It to the Geeks. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's the horror movie. <laughs> Bury the phone in the bat cemetery. It's got a cord. I'm Ben Rose for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians and a playlist curated by me just for you. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. <laughs> I still just love that line. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you? Interrupted Elliot. We have the king who was shaved. He got cut when he was being sha- shaved, I guess is the right word. He went off into the forest. He's been surrounded by a group of pagans who are building a fire to cook dinner. Do I got the story so far so good, Elliot? That's correct. Okay, and finish then all the story. Of a sudden, the leader of the pagan band walks up close to the rabbi and notices the cut on his face. And he says, We can't sacrifice this this man to our to our Lord because he has a blemish. It's kind of like the white heifer. It's got to be perfect. So they let him go. The king goes back to the castle. First thing he does is he tells his guards to let the guy out of the dungeon that had been punished there for saying whatever happens is good. And when the valet comes into the king's chambers uh, after his release, the king says, well, now one thing I want you to at least admit. It may be that you were right in this unique instance that what happened to me when you cut my face turned out to be good. But I hope you will agree, at least, and have learned from your experience in my smelly dungeon uh, that it isn't always true, because certainly uh, what happened to you uh, as a result of saying that to me and being sent to the judge the dungeon wasn't any good for you. And without a, a hesitation, the, the uh, servant says to the king, but your majesty, you're missing one thing. If you hadn't sent me to the dungeon, I would have been with you on that hunt. And I, Majesty, would have had no blemish. And so I would just recommend to your audience that we learn, if we can, to see our anger as that little nick uh, on our face and look for the possibilities that by getting in touch with it and fully accepting it, 
we can use it for our highest and for our relationship's highest good. Amazing. Elliot, great story. Tell us how we can get your book. My book is available on Amazon. Uh, it's available both in the uh, paperback edition. It's uh, $7.99 for that and only three ninety nine to download it on your Kindle or your iPad. Um, and it's as simple as that. Elliot, thank you. This was a lot of fun. I hope everyone out there learned a lot. Thank you again for joining us. Have a great Shabbos. Pleasure to be with you and good Shabbos to you. Okay, look, we always do things for the first time. We're always learning. I knew Rabbi Jonas and Goldson wouldn't be here today. He gave us a few extra minutes, and I, I wanted to hear the end of the story, and I wouldn't have been able to finish it without Elliot. So it was nice of Elliot to stay through an extra break to finish up that story. Um, so if everybody's ready behind the glass, we are ready for our next poster. And I'm waiting for a th- I have a thumbs up. I have my poster right behind me. So we are up to... The letter Mem, that would be the 13th letter in the Jewish alphabet. It makes an M sound like mom. Um, There are so many words that begin with the letter Mem. It's actually 40 is the numerical value. So um, the word I picked this week, I don't even know why I picked this word, but that's my word. My word is Y, or in Hebrew, the word is My. My actually rhymes with why? And that's one of the things that we try to do a lot around here. We try to ask why. And um, I don't always know the answer, but we certainly try. So I have about three and a half, no, I have four minutes. So I have to do two things. I didn't finish the story of Kamsa by Kamsa. I must finish that story. And I have another story. We always like to end with a story. So here we go. So again, we talked about earlier in the show, we have Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. This Bar Kamsa is a rotten fellow. He gets thrown out of the party. He's angry at all those, uh, those Jews. He goes and tells the Caesar that the Jews are rebelling. He brings a sacrifice as a good follow-up with our last story about a little blemish on the, on the king and his story. And, uh, and my story is a little blemish on the sheep. They go to the temple, and the, one of the rabbis says, can't bring the sacrifice. And they say, but come on, the Caesar is going to get incensed. Who knows what he's going to do? It doesn't matter. We're not letting. Okay, if we're not going to bring the sacrifice, let's at least kill the messenger so the message doesn't get back to the Caesar. What happened? No. Then people will say that if you put a blemish in an animal, you get killed. We can't do that either. So uh, they let him go back. He reports back to the Caesar. The Caesar then sends his armies, and that becomes the beginning of the end. But, but the story, the purpose of the story is to teach us all about hatred. That, and there's a lot of hatred going on in that story. The host hates Barakamsa. Barakamsa obviously hates everybody who he was embarrassed by. Even the friend Kamsa doesn't even understand that... If you love somebody, then you show up at the party uninvited. So again, that whole concept of how love and hatred goes um, is really what brought the, the, the destruction of the Second Temple. Um, there's actually two other things. The city of Betar, that's where Bar Kokhba had his home base when he was fighting a few years later with the Romans. That was captured and destroyed. And the, the Temple Mount was actually plowed over. Um, because of those five things, we are crying, we are sitting on the floor, 
We are doing all kinds of things that show mourning, sadness on this day of Tisha B'Av. Um, if you have a good feeling of understanding that there's there's uh, what's called lamentations and and kinot that we say the whole morning um, is really throughout throughout the the history of the Jewish people through Europe through through other countries any tragedy that takes place. During any point of the year, we cry over on Tisha B'Av. And the reason is because any tragedy is really just a continuation of the destruction of the temples while we're in exile. So I have a minute and a half, and I have one more quick story, and I want to say the story. So since it's my show, I am going to say that story. Here we go. So a friend comes uh, to, a, to a wealthy fellow, and he says, you know, I'm making a wedding coming up. Maybe you could lend me some money. And the, the fellow says, you know... Uh, He's thinking, I have money put away for my kids' weddings. I don't really need it now, but, eh, you know, I don't know if I want to lend it. So he says, no, so I don't have anything. Then he goes home and he says, you know what? I'm not using the money for the next year or two. My kids aren't getting married yet. I know what I'll do. I will go lend him the money. He goes to look for the money. It was hidden in a coat pocket in the basement. He goes down to look for that coat, and sure enough, the coat is missing. He goes to his wife and says, my dear, um, where is the coat? I had a lot of money in that coat. And the wife says, oh, no. I, that money, I, I, I didn't know there was money. It was an old coat. I didn't know what you wanted. I threw in the garbage. But wait, I just threw in the, in the garbage this morning. Garbage trucks don't come till tomorrow. So sure enough, he goes, he finds the, he finds the coat, finds the money, and he quickly goes to, his, to the friend, and he says, here's the money, enjoy it. He says, oh, you did me such a great favor, so appreciative. He says, i tell you the truth. You did me a bigger favor than I did you. And there's lots to learn from that story, but here comes my music. So I got to thank all my wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know, I couldn't do without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team today. We have Kelsey, Cole, Stephen, Zach. I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.